As we come now before God's Word, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians in chapter 4. By now, I assume as you open your Bibles, it may just fall to that place. But we'll read in Philippians chapter 4. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord God, would you help us to really think and dwell on your word here? Help us as we read these things to believe and to have life in your name. Lord, would you open our eyes to see by your spirit and help us to understand. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Philippians in chapter 4. I'll start in verse 4 and read through verse 9. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace, will be with you. This is God's word. Now, as Paul's beginning to close this letter to the people at Philippi, he's calling them and us now as Christians to particular things. This is how we're to live as followers of Jesus, ones who are really changed by Jesus. And so last week from this section, we focused on joy, to rejoice always. What does that look like? Uh, And this is really a summary of the whole book of Philippians, to rejoice in the Lord. This week from this section, we want to focus on the other major emphasis he gives here, which is peace. Now, I'm asked sometimes by you and others, who people who are being curious, which is good, uh, how I choose the books that I choose to preach from. And the answer that I give varies. You know, there's some, some variation in that. But there are some things that are the same. I tend to choose whole books 
or at least large sections of whole books to read through instead of preaching on topics. So I didn't come in here this morning intending to preach on peace. It's just here in the next section. And this is not the only way to preach, of course, but to do it this way helps to guard us, or at least me, from the temptation of preaching or listening to only things that we like, or the things that we want to hear, or our particular pet projects. I don't want our worship to sound like me. I want our worship to be centered on God. This is first the church of Jesus. It's not just our church or Big Tree Church or even a Presbyterian church. This is Christ's church, and so we want to hear what Jesus would have us to, to hear. Now, that said, I was drawn to the book of Philippians in the first place as something to preach through because of one verse. And it's a verse that's in this closing section. In fact, it's the verse that I have prayed for each of you most often. It's verse 7. I'll read it again. Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look at this piece. And, and I don't want to overanalyze it. You know, if you take something apart too much, it no longer makes sense anymore. And there's a sense in this anyway, which he says, this piece is beyond your understanding. But we want to do our best here to understand what we can about this peace of God. Because this is our part of our calling in Jesus. I'm going to try to keep this as tidy as I can. If you're a note taker, boy, this is, this is you. If you're a nice, organized person, as we look at the peace of God, I'm really going to boil it down to three questions, which are these. One, what is it? Two, why do we need it? And three, how do we get it? What is it? Why do we need it? And how do we get it? So let's do the first one now. When we look at the peace of God, what is it? I want you to do something for me for just a second. Oh, the inter interactive sermon all of a sudden. Whoa, don't know what to do with this. Uh, don't worry, you can sit in your seats and do this. I want you to imagine for a moment a scene that is peaceful. Now, when you're a man, oh, I heard it, yeah. There's certain things coming to mind. Uh, when you're imagining a peaceful scene, I would imagine that we're each imagining different things. Some might picture mountains. For some, it's, it's a beach setting. For some, maybe it's just you and a cup of coffee. For others, it might be a whole bunch of your friends and family gathered around. But even though some of the things we might imagine as being peaceful, I would, I would imagine also that there are some things in common with each of those. That in your peaceful scene, there are probably some things that are missing, that are not there. Things like empty noise and clutter and particular pressures. 
So part of peace is actually the absence of certain things, especially the absence of things like war and fighting and hostility. And this is true, of course, of the peace of God. There are things that are removed that give peace, things that are taken away, and it runs in the peace of God even on a far deeper level than just fighting with our neighbors and fighting with our other nations. We know that Jesus, who's called in the Bible the Prince of Peace, uh, we heard him mentioned earlier in the book of Philippi, or the book of Colossians from our uh, assurance of pardon. We heard that he has made peace by the blood of his cross, that he has taken away our alienation and the hostility of our minds. In other words, sin, our own sin, has set us against God. By desiring our own ways, we have really made ourselves enemies of God. And because we are sinful, we are at war with one another, we fight and gossip and backbite on one another, and we are at war with God. This is a war that we started. So we find sometimes that we shake our fist at God and demand things like freedoms. We demand things like gifts from him. And we demand things like explanations from him. And Jesus just says to us, that is not how a relationship with me works. But instead, what Jesus does is he removes our war-hardened heart. He's stripping away the basic hostility of our minds toward God. And in place of that absence, he adds something. Because the peace of God is not defined by what is not there. In fact, if something were totally empty, just entirely blank, I would imagine that's not what you imagine in a peaceful scene because an entirely blank scene is not peaceful. It tends to be creepy. But Jesus defines the peace of God by what is there. Jesus then replaces the war of our heart against him for the believer with a heart that loves God with a heart that desires God on some level, with a heart that wants God. And so the peace of God that Jesus brings by the blood of his cross is restored relationship with God. The word for peace in the Old Testament, little Hebrew here, we can handle it, is shalom. Maybe you've heard that before, especially if you have Jewish friends, they often say this, shalom. And the word uh, shalom in Hebrew in the Old Testament is often translated peace, and that's good, but there is a much broader meaning than the English word peace. So this word shalom we find in Deuteronomy when, when Moses uh, calls the people to build an altar to the Lord. He says, I want you to build it with stones that are shalem. Different vowels there than shalom, I know, but the same root word. I want you to build it with stones that are shalem. In other words, I want you to build it with stones that are uncut, that a stonemason has not touched, with stones that are left entirely whole. 
And then again in 1 Kings, we see that Solomon, when he's building a temple to the Lord, when it's all done, he moves all the, all the furniture in it, all the items, all the incense, all, all the pieces that belong in there. And then the house of the Lord was shalom, meaning the house of the Lord was finished and complete. So from all of these things, in other words, to have shalom is much more than just to not have war with God. To have shalom is to be made whole, is to be made complete. This is what the peace of God is. He is making us complete, whole people as followers of Jesus. So that was our first question. Peace of God, what is it? Now, second question, peace of God, why do we need it? I don't know if I need to explain this. I would imagine you have a good sense of this. There's lots of reasons, but in Philippians specifically, if you'll notice as we read through, he's actually contrasting the peace of God with something else in particular. Verse 6, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but present your request to God and the peace of God will come. He's, usually, he's using the peace of God specifically in contrast to anxiety. And when Paul's writing here, he's not just talking to a particular few people, the ones that really might struggle with anxiety. He's talking to the whole church, all of the people at Philippi. Because anxiety is a real and dangerous threat to peace. Jesus gets at the root of this in the Sermon on the Mount. This will sound familiar to many of you, I would imagine. When Jesus addresses our interaction with anxiety in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, not about your body or what you put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? As Jesus talks here about the root of anxiety, the thing that leads to our lack of peace, he hits the nail right on the head. It is really about a lack of faith in God. Well, that's not meant to be a slam <laughs> or necessarily to just leave us in a puddle and feeling guilty. Jesus is just being honest with us here. When we, the root of this is when we're not looking 
to and trusting in the Lord. Instead, we find ourselves looking to and trusting in our circumstances, in our physical surroundings to tell us how to feel. And so we find ourselves wondering, do I have enough food? Do I have enough clothes? Do I have enough money? Do I have enough friends? Do I have enough support? Do I have enough family? Do I have enough skill? Do I have enough talent? Do I have enough smarts? Do I have enough strength? Do I, do I, do I, do I? Do you know what that's like? If I'm honest, I do. I've had seasons of anxiety where if I actually sit and thought about what was happening around me, it just, it physically feels like it's welling up inside of me until it's almost got a hold around my neck. When we put faith in our circumstances, it will lead us away from peace and toward anxiety until it consumes us. We will be left either overwhelmed or paralyzed or just driven to work harder and harder and harder until our life is completely drained out. You can see now why we need the shalom, the wholeness, the peace of God. Paul knows what this is like. I mean, you'll remember if you've been here with us that in the context of Philippians, the reason why he has to write them a letter is because he can't visit them. He's in prison at this time. And I would imagine that every morning you wake up with physical chains on your hands, that that might lead to anxiety. But it's interesting that Paul does not say to them here, if only I could be set free, then I would have peace. That's usually the way we try to get peace, with a bunch of if-onlys. If only this, if only that, then I would have peace. And I think the reason why Paul doesn't even go there is because he knows that even if his physical circumstances got better, it just wouldn't all be fixed. Paul knows that there is still a threat, not only from outside of him, but from inside of him. There is still a measure of war that is happening inside of him in his mind and in his heart. He very honestly talks about that uh, in the book of Romans in chapter 7. I find this so helpful. Romans 7, uh, beginning in verse 21, Paul says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I do desire in the law of God in my inner being, but I also see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
when Paul calls himself a wretched man here, he's not self-hating. He's just naming what is true in his experience and how completely exhausting it is that on some level inside he does have some delight for God, but he is also experiencing sin and anxiety and conflicting desires, and they are like battering rams on the doors of his castle, and they beat and beat and beat on the door and just won't let up. And there's an easy way to stop this war. The war that rages within. There's an easy way to stop it. You just give in to it. That's the easy way. Just throw open the doors and surrender to everything that's raging on the castle. Invite in all the evils and disobedience that want in and just go ahead and set the table for them. If that happens, your conscience then will no longer be bothered, at least for a time. The battering ram will stop. And if that happens, this isn't war anymore, but it's also not peace. That's not the wholeness of shalom. In fact, when we, if we do this, we are very far from being made whole and complete. We're actually more broken than before. Perhaps you've experienced this. Times when you've just surrendered to wickedness. That's not peace, that's surrender. And it's not what we want. What we want to be, want to become, are real peacemakers. And real peacemakers don't just acquiesce to whatever comes. They don't just lie down and take it. They're not just trying to get along at any cost. A real peacemaker won't just do anything to avoid trouble. As one person said it, mere avoidance of war does not make peace. Real peace is an uphill climb. It's work and sweat, and, and it needs to be fought for. <laughs> Do you see the irony in that, that peace would be fought for? But that's exactly what Paul says in verse 7. I'll read it again. He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And the word that he uses there for guard, the image of that word is like a, 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 a military garrison, a sentinel that's built specifically to protect from fighting. And the readers, the first readers of this, the people of Philippi, would have totally understand what Paul meant by this, because the city of Philippi was founded by Philip II, who's, who was the dad of Alexander the Great. And uh, the city was built up as a Roman military colony, and it was full of veteran soldiers. So they get war. And now do you see the irony that Paul is saying to these warriors? He says, the peace of God will be your strong army. 
The peace of God will protect you. No matter how strong the source of anxiety rages against your hearts and mind, the peace of God will stand on the sentinel and protect you. Mm, I want that. So now that brings us to our final question. What is it? Why do we need it now? Peace of God, how do we get it? I'll try to get real practical here without stepping outside of what Paul has told us. You'll notice here that in this section, Paul does not actually command us or call us to peace. He could. That would fit with Scripture. But he doesn't. He just speaks about peace as a truth. He speaks about peace here in this section as a result of obedience to other things. So we want to talk about those other things now as a source of the peace of God. So as we look at how do we get this peace, I'll give us as we ride this wave here to the end, three things. If you're the practical person, this is for you. The first, and how do we get it, is to focus our thinking Did you notice the very, ah, the lovely, it makes my heart swell. Verse 8, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy, think about these. Now, by this, he doesn't mean that we should ignore completely all the things that cause anxiety. He doesn't want us to avoid our responsibilities. Some issues need to be dealt with. Some hard conversations need to be had. We even see that lived out in Jesus. But he doesn't want us to fill our minds with those things. The word here that in my Bible is translated think about means to, not just to think about as a passing thought, but to dwell on, to stop and consider, to actually devote attention to. So he wants us to put these things in the crock pot, not the microwave, and let it simmer. How transformative it would be in guiding our feet in the way of the peace of God if we devoted our minds consciously to these things. As you think about your day, as you think about the things that you listen to, Is it lovely? Is it commendable? As you think about the things that you look at and expose yourself to, is it honorable? Is it pure? As you think about the conversations that you have, is it just? Is it praiseworthy? Now, this doesn't mean that we have to inject the word Jesus into everything. Not everything has to be overtly Christian or say the name of Jesus. In fact, I've heard many Christian songs without naming, so-called Christian songs without naming particular ones that, that are just very far from excellent or even true. And there are many other songs that are not overtly or particularly Christian that are much closer to those things. 
there's some artists and poets and chefs and actors and all these people that are creating real praiseworthy things that are in line with the truth of God, even if they themselves don't know it. So there's lots that we could uh, think about that would fit with these categories. But of course, if, if we want to think on a really uh, slow cook, if we want, really want to put in the crock pot things that are just and pure and true and praiseworthy, of course, the best source of that will be sitting on your lap right now. The Bible, the word of God itself, these are things of God. If we think on these things, the peace of God will guard you. So there's one. Secondly, practically, a way we can get at the peace of God is to practice thanksgiving. He says this in verse 6, Don't be anxious, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. So much of anxiety focuses on what we wish we had. We wish we had more money, more confidence, more friends, more energy, more people who love us. Or we wish we had fewer things, less pain, fewer problems, less obligation. And all those things may be real and true, but thanksgiving focuses not on what we wish we had, but on what we actually do have. And considers those things as gifts from God. And that can be true even in the hardest things of our life. In fact, Paul, here, remember, he's in prison. And at the beginning, you remember months ago now, in chapter 1, he talked about because he was, he was in prison, some of the guards have actually come to know about Jesus. And because he's in prison, he says, some of the brothers, other Christians whom I love, have grown in their boldness to share the love of Jesus. And so Paul, though of course he would want to get out of prison if he had the key to it, he says, at least for these things, I'm glad. At least for these things, I'm, I'm thankful. I know that God is at work in prisons and hospitals and nursing homes and on the streets and in the fields, and I am thankful for that. When we cultivate thankfulness to God, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. And lastly, the third way we get after this is to pray. <laughs> is that too obvious? <laughs> that sounds very Christian. Is that too simple? I, but that's Paul's main emphasis here. You'll notice if I read it all together, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but instead, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Faithful prayer is the most effective weapon we have to fight against the brutalities of anxiety that war within us. And this is because when we pray, it's actually a different form of surrender. We're saying to God, I cannot do this on my own. When we pray, we're saying to God, I am losing the battles with sin and struggle within me and outside of me. Lord, please help. 
And he does. He does help. Even if it doesn't change how we feel in that particular moment. And then when the anxiety rises up against us and begins to rage, even in the very next moment, we pray again, Lord, help me again. And in doing this, we stop focusing on our circumstances. We're actually saying, Lord, help us to know what's true about you. And as we do this over and over and over, it develops a reflex of faith that will produce peace in us in time. Real peace is the fruit of persistent prayer. Because prayer is dependence on an all-powerful God. And not just a God who's all-powerful, a God who actually says to us, I want you to cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. You'll notice as we wind this down now, the sentence that Paul wrote just before he said, don't be anxious. There's a small sentence, he says, almost in passing. At the end of verse 5, he says, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious. The Lord is at hand. In one sense, he's coming, of course, but it's also that he's nearby. He is close. To, he's at hand. He's almost so close that you could touch him. And no matter how close those anxieties and fears and evils are, the Lord is closer to you. We know that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, and when he was killed, beaten, and a sacrifice for sin, he told his followers not to fear because he would not leave them alone. He says this in John chapter 14 as we close here. John chapter 14, verse 25. These are the words of Jesus. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So don't let your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. As we learn to believe and to trust Jesus, we'll find that the peace of God, which is beyond all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Almighty, Thank you for your kindness to us and for your presence with us. Thank you for being near to all who call on you by faith. We want you with us. We need you with us. Lord, would you guard us with your peace now to be faithful followers of you 
and to be peacemakers in your world. And we give you all praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.